0: Greetings future fossils, this is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And on this day, Friday, March 9th, 2018, it is still the week that Blade Runner 2049 won for Best Cinematography and Best Special Effects at the Academy Awards. Which pleases me. Two awards it Deeply deserved cinematographer Roger Deakins finally getting the award that he's had stolen time and time again. But more than this being about the victory of underdogs in cinema, I'm excited every time a really intelligent science fiction thought piece like 2049 gets its moment in the sun. Say what you will about the film's various contestable shortcomings. It was a dream come true to see a sequel to the extraordinarily intelligent Blade Runner carried out with such thoughtfulness and care and actually expand on the nuanced moral and spiritual issues put forward by the first film. So I did what I had to do. And I recorded a series of conversations with film scholars and critics, philosophers and writers talking about the themes of 2049, how they fit into the full canon of our science fiction inheritance, how it references the myths and spirituality of antiquity, tapping into those deep archetypal forces, and playing at some of the deepest questions humankind has ever asked. I'm excited in this first installment of the Blade Runner interview triptych to welcome Temple University Professor Barry Vacker to the show to talk about his criticism of the admittedly dreary future offered us by Blade Runner 2049, and the thesis of his book Specter of the Monolith about the role of science fiction in culture at large. But before we begin... I'd like to take a moment to thank all 100 of you that are now supporting this show on Patreon, including the four new supporters, Justin Wells, Ben Harper, Jason Albert Hall, and Lance Eddy. Not only do you four have access to the other two Blade Runner interviews and the rest of Charles Shaw's fascinating four-hour conversation, before I release those into the wild, But you are also the recipients of oodles of exclusive and early access music and lectures and even a coloring book that I'll be putting out to Patreon subscribers in the very near future. Also, big thanks to everyone who's been rating and reviewing this show, either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy leaving your scathing roasts and hagiographic brown nosing there is no such thing as bad press when it comes to convincing the podcast delivery algorithms that some new friend in the making should listen to this show and have their minds opened to the conversation therein so on behalf of everyone who would otherwise have not discovered future fossils podcast I thank you And that is it for now. Stay tuned for an extra episode this week with mythologist and film scholar John David Ebert as we go deep into the mythological underpinnings of Blade Runner 2049. But for now, enjoy this delightful conversation about how much better of a job we could be doing than we are with turning our imagination and collective human creativity toward that so-called final frontier and how we may still have a chance at saving the soul of our species before we ruin space with more of the same old shit. Barry Vacker, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Yeah, so I encountered your work for the first time right after seeing Blade Runner 2049, and you wrote this excellent piece on how, you know, as much of an accomplishment as that film was in, in different ways, it just perpetuates this particular vision of the future that is all too common in contemporary science fiction. And it's, it's a you know, an especially sort of bleak view in which we do not make the psycho-spiritual transformations required of us in order to move, like... You know, beyond ourselves. And, and, uh, I, you know, I just found it really compelling. And, you know, I started looking into your stuff and would love to hear you kind of state the case of your work in your own way and, like, and kind of how you came to that, that line of thinking, I guess.
1: All right. Well, that, uh, thanks for a uh, uh, nice open ended question there. Uh, the essay that you mentioned for your listeners is called Thus Spoke. Blade Runner, and it's in the uh, it's at the site Medium, and anyway, and even that title references what I think the key question of 20th century science fiction, especially post World War II, and it and it's a question that was raised by the philosopher Nietzsche, and that is simply this: If humans have evolved from apes, and now obviously we have, but if we have evolved from apes, and Darwin is true then what will evolve from humans? What will be the next sort of evolutionary leap? And in Nietzsche's uh, view, that was the Ubermensch or the Overman or the Superman. And he was posing it really as a philosophical question. What would we evolve into with the death of God, uh, wrought by Darwin, industrial society, mechanization, and all the things of uh, the early modern technologies of the late uh, 19th century when Nietzsche was writing. And I think that question has never really been addressed fully. What would come next? And uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey dealt with that question explicitly. That is the narrative of that film as we go Mm -hmm. from apes to astral sort of uh, next level spacefaring uh, civilization. And Blade Runner is trapped in the sort of same vision of the future in which humans are, are congregating in these sort of regimented mega cities that are sprawling. Nature is pushed far, far away. And, it, and when the, we do see any visions of nature, it's either a simulacrum, like we saw in Blade Runner 2049, in which there's the the person inside the little virtual nature dome there that the replicant goes to visit, or it's completely uh, despoiled, like we saw in uh, 2049, and it looks like they've got walls built around Los Angeles to keep out the rising sea levels. So I think for all the visual masterpiece and the visual power of Blade Runner 2049, it lacks the philosophical leap, and thus it's sort of stuck in the same kind of uh, philosophical uh, conundrum that you alluded to. That we can imagine better copies of people, but we can't imagine better people. Mm. So, we're, and that's the artificial intelligence and cloning and everything. Is that somehow we can make better and better copies? Better and better simulacra of people, but the original. Well, we can't do that. We'll just have the same old thing going on, and I think that's the question that was poetically hinted at in two thousand one. That I don't think any subsequent film has really tried to deal with.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I feel that twenty forty nine is one of those films that's in a weird way. It's it's right there on the lip of it. You know, it's it's like in the moment before the revelation, in a sense that it, it has this. Since I mean, it's it's critiquing I think the very thing that you're critiquing, but it it fails to offer anything like the Star Child, you know, any any vision of transcendence, you know, it doesn't really provide that transformed body that you know the like the New Jerusalem or whatever, in the way that like you begin to see, I guess, in the Matrix films. Sort of alluded to at least, you know, that there are there are great human capacities, and the made and the born can be reconciled in some sort of non dual way. I think that's also a part of this. So, I mean, actually, that's that's a good question for you. I think, um, how do you see the role of the machine or the mechanical in this vision of like a transcendent humanity?
1: Well, that's that, that's a really great question, and I think that that you know, again. Going back to Nietzsche, we have Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein at the same time, and the Frankenstein uh, creation has been the prototype for the Terminator, and probably Rory in the original Blade Runner. That idea of the sort of the merger of the machine and the human, or the merger of the technology and the human, to create some kind of super being that ultimately becomes a terror. I think that's sort of the warning that Mary Shelley provided there uh, in the original Frankenstein. And there's a similar, uh, that narrative as it plots over the 20th century, 2001 uh, is the major deviation from that. But I think that so many of the better humans or the more powerful humans that sci- science fiction has presented, at least in the film world, where I'm more familiar than I am with all the literature. And that is that it would have to be a human augmented by some super powerful technologies, and that it would be a technological solution to a philosophical problem or a philosophical challenge. And I think that there's a couple of different ways to take Nietzsche's challenge, what will evolve from humans if we have evolved from apes or since we've evolved from apes? And so you have one is the Frankenstein kind of uh, scenario that it would be some sort of technological terror or some technological horrific thing. But I think there's the other idea that it would be an intellectual leap. And in 2001, A Space Odyssey points in that direction that there will be some kind of intellectual leap that would happen on the journey the cosmos, but it's very vague and it's presented very artistically. In how uh, you know the astronaut Dave goes through the Stargate and he's going through some kind of psychological uh, transformation there. But it's also there are scenes of him kind of being horrified and in awe, and also at the same time being in awe of the beauty that he's as he's projecting through the uh, the Stargate. Anyway, so. I think there's two ways to imagine this better human, and one of them is the standard augmented reality human or the technological one, but we haven't uh, figured out the sort of the more intellectually enlightened one that, in other words, in which we can transcend our current moment in time and project out a better individual human and a better species as a whole. And that is, uh, which I find it, Interesting that science fiction cannot has so inadequately dealt with this, (laughs) since it's been I believe it's been sixty years since we figured out that all the uh, heavy metals on Earth were prototyped in stars, um, you know, a billion years ago or even more. And so every human on this planet is made out of the most common elements of the cosmos, the most common elements that the stars are made out of. So we know we're part of this vast universe. And as uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, the universe is in us and we're in we're of the universe and the universe is of us. And I think science fiction is just literally, oh well, the term you used before we started the podcast, the poverty of imagination, I would, I, I agree with that completely. But I, I don't think we've imagined the intellectual leap. That it would take to have a, a a more enlightened species, not a merely more technologically augmented species. Mm.
0: Yeah, because okay, so there are in that sense there are two films that come up for me when I think of Hollywood's popular visioning of the transcendent human. And both of them are terrible. So <laughs> one of them is Lawnmower Man. And then the other one is, I, is John Hertz, his sort of fictional rendition of John C. Lilly, the sense deprivation tank or like flotation tank scientist, John Lilly, who worked with dolphins and, you know, ketamine and all this weird shit in Altered States. You know, and in both of those films. Yes, exactly. Both of those films you have... This mad scientist trope, you know, one who operates on himself, one who operates on someone else. So I don't know. I'd, I'm curious to have you speak to that because I think there's also a, d- a dimension of this in which as like uh, Jeff Kripel of Rice, Rice University in Houston talks about superheroes as being especially relevant now for the same reasons that we're it's because of our technology that we have come up across or come up against these internal investigations like these these internal boundaries moral questions to ask of these new powers that we've discovered i think that's a big part of this i don't know
1: yeah i'm actually glad you brought up altered states because that is i think is an underrated science fiction film actually it's not a masterpiece but i think it's underrated and uh the I was in Austin in the mid eighties and early nineties doing my graduate studies the, at the University of Texas there and I remember this uh uh sensory deprivation tank uh location where you could go in, into the sensory deprivation tank for like fifteen or minutes or more or whatever you wanted to do. But uh anyway, back to your question. Uh what was your question again? I just now I started
0: thinking about that sensory <laughs> oh, deprivation. Those, tank. I feel like those there's there's like a whole constellation of stuff around those two films, and like other films like those, uh, that explore the mad scientist, and I think that yeah. there's a way that cinema has has figured the mad scientist. Oh, you know, another one would be Watchmen. You know, Doctor Manhattan. Right. You know, Alan Moore's very deliberate playing yeah. of that that archetype. I think there's something there in yeah. the transcendent vision, that Nietzschean Ubermensch type thing, that The Watchman especially turns on. I'd be curious to hear if, you know, how you feel that if that satisfies this kind of thing that you feel that other science fiction films are falling short on.
1: Well, I've actually got another essay in Medium uh, called Ancient Alien Superheroes and the Decline in Religious Belief. And I do think the superhero has emerged and you can track the uh, number of superhero films and the increase in them at the same and almost on a, a very similar plot line to the decline in religious belief or at least traditional religious belief and i think superheroes are filling they're kind of like our secular gods they have these magical powers that might have been attributed to uh deities or gods in the past and i think that ancient aliens tv show which tries to in fact has hijacked the 2001 a space odyssey narrative and then and tried to give this sort of connection of humans on Earth to the stars, but it's doing it with all this bogus uh, archaeological evidence. And so I think the superheroes and the ancient aliens are filling this void. In fact, I was uh, stunned to see a survey that says over 30% of Americans believe that we've been visited by ancient aliens. And the number seems to be going. That was a Chapman University survey, in case one of your listeners wants to to look it up. But the thing about the Nietzsche and Ubermensch is that the idea of the Ubermensch, the Overman, the Superman, that later informed the superhero narrative that emerged in America. But there was a step in between that's often lost in some of that discussion. I'm sure many of your readers are very knowledgeable, and they may know this, but others might not. But when the Soviet Union uh, was founded in the uh, late 19-teens, they sort of promised this new Marxist man that there would be a new man, a new kind of human society would emerge in which once the, the humans were liberated from uh, the tyranny of industrial capital, somehow we would be uh, united in the collective ownership of the means of production and this sort of Marxist new man would rise up and ultimately was supposedly was destined to, uh, you know, colonize the planet and we would have this one giant system, sort of a giant centralized industrial system. And approximately the same time, but not exactly the same time, the Nazis had the, their mythical racist Aryan new man who was going to supposedly destined to rule Europe and other parts of the world. And so you had these sort of horrific new man uh, societies in which the, the, the dark side of the, the communist revolution was the totalitarianism and and the mass slaughter, and then we all know what happened with uh, Nazi Germany and the horrors of of the genocide and Holocaust. And so America tempered its thing down. And so when we were trying to counter the propaganda of the Soviets and the uh, Nazis, we had the Democratic man. And so we turned it over to Norman Rockwell to create those paintings and those artworks. And so the Democratic man was a much more humble man that he was, you know, Content to have his consumer society would exercise its free speech as needed, and would would vote in the elections, and was concerned about the school board or the city council or something like that. It was far different vision than the, the kind that was being offered by the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And then after World War II, when Nazi Germany rightly destroyed, we still had to contend with the Soviet Union. And at that point, the Democratic man seemed to be a pale thing against this new breed that was supposedly superior. And so we had to invent something. And I think that's where the Superman comes in and the Batman and all these other superheroes come in to fill the void to give us the idea that something is out there that could emerge to save us. So we can't have a new man, the Soviet version that failed, the Aryan man that was destroyed. And and I guess the the Soviet man collapsed or the Marxist man. And so what's left, it's just the consumer, the democratic consumer man. And uh, we know that In that version, we don't really have any answers. And I think the superhero has emerged to make us feel like we're still worth saving, to give us a moment of salvation at the movie theater. Because when we walk out, we realize our political leaders have no answers. They They have no solutions. All you have to do is look at who's... Uh, The presidential elections of the last 20 or 30 years, and you can see it's pretty much the same business as usual across that trajectory with a little variation depending on uh, which party is in office. And I think for those sort of more secular, more maybe um, independent-minded kind of uh, individuals, uh, uh, not religious or whatever, I think the superhero has filled that void and gives a sense of, of possible hope in confronting a culture that is accelerating forward with technology, but still has a side effect of these sort of apocalyptic environmental conditions that are out there. And so we're sort of in between. So people want a vision of hope that we can overcome those problems and still have the benefits of the technology. And I think that's what most of the superheroes offer, although the Watchman with Dr. Manhattan is a warning about that.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hope
1: that wasn't an answer
0: there. No, no, no. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Just sitting with this right now, it just occurred to me that this somehow relates to the way that we understand billionaire entrepreneurs. My younger brother, the aerospace engineering student, and his fanboy obsession with Elon Musk, this guy <laughs> who has this has this vision of a you know a, a city on Mars. And then you, you know, Doctor Manhattan actually goes and builds this crystalline clock city on Mars. And there's 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 a through line there somewhere. You know, the guy was destroyed by the military-industrial complex and like remade, which I think speaks to the individual as an institution. Maybe you know, like post twentieth century, the way that that each of us are in you know empowered. It's funny to critique transhumanism and to have uh, techno-optimists argue, you know, but look at this, we're living better than a king was living a hundred years ago. And it's like, well, it's complicated, you know, that we've... Yes, much complicated, Yes. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about
1: Elon Musk, and I'm glad you brought that up, and, and I have to say this, it's sort of, here comes the self-hype, I just had a book come out this summer called Spectre of the Monolith, mm-hmm. and it's a critique of 20th century and 21st century space films, but it's also a critique of our, our space narrative as a whole, and I think that if you look at the film 2001, that's sort of seen as the prototypical greatest space film ever. But if you pay close attention to what's happening, it's showing a vision of space tourism because the guy flies at the space station on, a, I believe, a Pan Am, mm-hmm. I guess, space jet. But when they, they show the scenes on the moon, we are not pillaging the moon. We're not plundering it. We're not, I, I don't think there's a scene in the film where there's strip mining the moon, which is what some of the companies uh, in America want to do. I think it looks like we're exploring it and studying it And also flying over it, and we're able to see the beauty of that. And there's so many fanboys of of Musk who think, and and fanboys of space in general, who think that we should go to the moon and strip mine it and plunder it and bring helium-3 or helium-1 or whatever it is back back to Earth to consume as an energy source. I think that is completely ludicrous to be thinking that we should strip mine the moon. And you can just see the craters will be like landfills. That's what we would do. We would just have, they would just fill it up with used cell phones and trash and everything else. And the idea that we should terraform Mars and Earth's own image, how more narcissistic can you get? And so so I think humans have this sort of deep-seated, at least the fanboys and the space visions reflect a deep-seated cosmic narcissism that says well there's the moon sitting there since no one's there i will go plunder it and the same with mars we'll go terraform it right i, I in my book i present a very different vision for how we could explore space scientifically and also visit it and appreciate its beauty i uh, and i sort of outlined sort of coexisting uh, narrative for going into space that that acknowledges the role of philosophy and to find a new meaning for our species in this vast universe in which we're utterly not central and utterly insignificant. Yet we're still very brainy and very smart and amazingly creative. And so I, and so I argue that it's time to give, give up these tired narratives of deities and, and industrial exploitation and move toward a scientific and artistic appreciation of these planets and i don't see that anywhere on the horizon out there uh it's just pretty much let's go plunder let's put all the weapons up in space and very very few people are questioning anything uh uh, or challenging any of these sort of tribal narratives which said that humans should go up as various tribes and if you know what happens when we get to the moon and we start arguing over resources there'll be a war because it's been happening throughout human history Mm. Yeah, I don't want to end that on a bleak note I, I, what I would I argue in my book I'm arguing here is that why can't we go into space under a narrative in which we study it scientifically we're trying to find our origins our destiny we want to know why the moon lost its water or how much water was there but it's also a, of a planet of spectacular beauty and this is totally overlooked even in Ridley Scott's The Martian there's very little appreciation of the beauty of the planet in fact Matt Damon says f mars right i'm going to conquer this place i'm going to science the shit out of this and we never seen looking at the dark skies he would be the single human who would have had the greatest view of the skies ever there would have been no atmosphere to twinkle the stars and would have had the greatest view ever of the milky way and we don't see any of that in the Martian. all we see is how could we transform those resources into surviving and it was And that makes The Martian what was a really smart and intelligent film, but it's got the poverty, a philosophical imagination that you and I were discussing before we started the podcast. But if you look at the American Southwest, there's a giant tourism economy based on going out and appreciating the beauty of the Grand Canyon or Guadalupe National Park or the the, the canyons up in uh, Utah and, other, and Wyoming and other places, we've developed a multi-billion dollar economy on the idea of getting away a bit, having some solitude, appreciating the awe and wonder of these natural landscapes on Earth. I don't see why that idea can't be extended out into space as well.
0: Indeed. Fascinating. Although, you know, I got to say there is a sense in which All of our national parks are now artifacts. It's this uh, encompassing Anthropocene issue, this issue that like in order to preserve, at least on the land for certain, at least on the land that to preserve something, you know, it renders it non-wilderness we need to come up with a new definition yes. of wilderness that's more focused on biodiversity and functioning resilient ecology than on, on its lack of disturbance by human hand, because everything has been disturbed by human hands. And exactly. So,
1: in fact, I, 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 just to follow that point, I would argue that we should, we need to set up a movement to ensure that the moon and Mars are protected as celestial wilderness areas. And I don't mean like one little patch of a crater saved and the rest of the planet pillaged like we've done on Earth, but saving like 99, you know, uh, declaring that 99.999% of Mars is off limits to humans. That would still leave about, I think, about 50 square miles for human activity in very limited, uh, minimal impact ways. And then we would have the rest of the, the surface for flying above it and studying it or maybe hiking in some remote, a few areas, but we could do on mars and the moon exactly what you just described we have a fresh start and a way to take an entire celestial body and make it a a wilderness area and and to the extent that we think of the you know obviously there's not any life on the moon and there's none on mars that we know of but the the idea of these sort of untouched desert landscapes that still reveal massive amounts of uh, history about the origins of the solar system maybe the origins of life in our solar system and yet they are of, of
0: stunning beauty well Mm. seems like you come and not that I identify particularly with either side of it I'll just say that right away but it seems like you come up in stark contrast to the complementary philosophy let's call it that that life ought to be spread throughout the cosmos that that we have a a kind of a responsibility it's a uh, extropian project ultimately, I think, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, the, 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 this idea that, um, and this was, this was actually put on in, uh, 2001, uh, a space odyssey, I believe, you know, if you like by reading the the complimentary book that was like written in tandem with the film, then yeah. Arthur C. Clarke sort of projects this trajectory for intelligent life that includes space colonizing you know like space migration and ultimately like a transcendence through an ensouled machine intelligence and into just like a celestial being and that's sort of traced out ahead of us as a, a morphic groove down which we can kind of anticipate the future evolution of the human being and so there's a sense there that it sounds it sounds like it's um opposed to the idea of us rendering yeah go ahead
1: (laughs) i'm opposed yeah i'm opposed to the propagation of human stupidity in the cosmos nearby or far away so uh I'm not opposed to us going to Mars or to the moon. I'm not opposed to that at all. But I think we should go there as enlightened beings, not merely we should go as spacefarers, not merely spore bearers. You know, in other <laughs> words, we're, you know, the propagation is the the idea that we're just shooting our spores off into space, right? Like a palobalous fungus in the manure on Earth and we're shooting out our spores and hoping it lands a few feet away and catches on and keeps going, right? And I think we have, there are two very different visions of space. There's these sort of space faring species in which we move out in an enlightened way, or there's the spore bearing version in which we move out because we've effed up the planet so bad we've got to go someplace else. That's the underlying narrative of Interstellar, that we're spore bearing. That, in other words, they're going to fire those astronauts on the endurance. Through the wormhole and then on, eventually through the black hole. And so Cooper and the Brand and the other people there—they're they're the spores that are being flown out in, or shot from our planet into space, like a fungus spore, right? Pew, shot out. And I think the Star Trek narrative, even though it sort of has this idea that there's been some colonization, but it's I, the idea is that it's the backstory is that we worked out our differences on Earth and we moved out in a sane, peaceful way and I'm not saying every episode in the original Star Trek, in fact, that's what I'm referring to is the original Star Trek. I'm not saying everyone reflected this, but it was the idea that we went out in a very intelligent way. So, so to the extent that I'm against the extropian view of just extending life out there, I'm against the extending of stupid life out there and stupid human <laughs> behavior and stupid things out there. And it, you know that's what I'm against, and I see that's the dominant one. I mean, you if we don't alter this narrative, we know what we're going to have. I mean, it will literally be X Games Moon, and that's what it will be. And we'll see guys, you know, doing uh, verts off the craters of the moons, right? Snowboarding on doing a vert off the crater of it, you know, Real Housewives from Mars. Exobiologist by day, fembotels by night. You know, you will see all the human carnival and spectacle extended there. And I think we already have an analogy. What territory was completely a blank slate with no human activity or very minimal? And what? And and, and if we can find that place where there was no impact, no humans in it, and what have we uploaded to it on the internet of the last 25 years? The internet was a blank slate, and look what we've uploaded, the human carnival, the human circus. And unless we change those narratives, we're going to extend the same thing to the moon and the Mars and be, uh, in my view, an embarrassment to the universe, which has been nice enough to let us exist so far.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it really reminds me of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson tackles all of this stuff in his Mars trilogy. You've read those, right?
1: Uh, I've read parts of them a long time ago, and I but I, have, I can't can't say I read them all now.
0: Yeah, you know, ultimately it's a terraforming thing. You know, it's it's that is, uh, however, questioned in these books, and so you get this interesting sort of tetrad of Mars colonists and their descendants in that series that are either uh, politically aligned with Earth or politically aligned with Mars or believe in the wilderness of Mars or believe in it being an object for terraformation. And so oh, there's, yeah. So you get this, you get, a, you know, a, it's a very believable political taxonomy. I, w- I should say about the way that, that people are going to break socially along the fault lines of this new issue, which is like, what do we do with these? Because I mean, I think, you know, part of this and, we can critique the lack of it until we're both blue in the face. But I think, you know, it's equally important to articulate the sort of transcendent vision or opportunity in a a positive way also. And I think that part of that is that if we are to render these spaces, uh, if we are to rather have like the wisdom to exert any reserve whatsoever in our relation to them if we're to like not just completely uncritically launch onto every new celestial object with the this like the sort of prime directive of conquest then it takes i think an economic transition or a philosophical transition in the in the sense that those two terms can probably not be you know ultimately separated in the same way that it did in the Star Trek universe whereas like they have replicators. They don't really want for anything as far as their basic sustenance is concerned. They've sort of transcended. Uh, they haven't transcended property, but they have relaxed around the idea of property so much right. that that it's it's not foundational in the way that they are relating to their discoveries.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and I think that even the the replicators kind of go back to Robbie the Robot in Forbidden Planet, the 50s classic. And remember the robot provided all the food and all the goods and all the the needs of uh, Dr. Morbius and his daughter on Forbidden Planet. That idea that there would be some technology nearby that would provide all the goods you needed and then you wouldn't have to worry about sustenance or survival or fashion or anything because remember they were all very elegantly attired and the robot was apparently the fashion designer and everything else and so so i think star trek picked up on that idea that we could somehow once we got the material resources or the material needs satisfied that somehow we would move on to these more intellectual challenges and i don't think we've been able to succeed in doing that and you know i think there's part of the question is is this and I write about this in Spectre the Monolith, and that is, is that when the first astronauts went to the moon, it wasn't Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Cooper, it was the Apollo 8 astronauts, Jim Lovell, uh, William Anders, and Frank Borman. And when they got to the moon and they were orbiting it, and they took the famous Earthrise photo, which actually isn't. The one word that's very famous is the Earth is rising above the Moon, but that, that's not how the that's not the perspective they saw. When they came around the Moon, they actually saw Earth to the side of it. And uh, but NASA and the media agreed just to flip it so Earth would be on top of it because it looks more secure. It looks less vertiginous and Earth floating with the Moon to the right of us. It was Christmas Eve when they did their famous broadcast and the astronauts uh, read from Genesis back to uh, Earth, and uh, I would argue that that was the greatest intellectual reversal in human history, probably the greatest intellectual collapse of uh, philosophy that we've ever seen, because at the penultimate moment, a logical and scientific triumph, we resort to a creation myth to explain what we're looking at on the screen, which was Earth floating in space or the moon floating in space. And I think that gets to the point that I want to make, is that we have yet to develop a narrative That provides a sense of meaning and hope in a vast universe, now numbering two trillion galaxies, in a vast universe in which we're utterly physically insignificant. Yet, at the same time, we've evolved from the materials of the universe, and we've proven to be very brainy and very creative. And I think our greatest intellectual achievement is to discover the universe that we now have discovered two trillion galaxies stretching across somewhere between 60 to 100 billion light years, the sextillions of stars. That's like, I think the NASA says there's three sextillion stars estimated. That's three followed by, what, 24 or 27 0 something like that hmm. and so we don't have that narrative in that so we so I spent a lot of time uh, out near Marfa Texas in West Texas where they have all these great modern art and stuff but there's an observatory nearby McDonald Observatory run by the University of Texas and they have, you can go there a few nights a week on the, and do their star parties and look through some very powerful telescopes and see these incredible phenomena actually you can see the Andromeda galaxy very clearly in your telescope you know looking outside the Milky Way beyond the Milky Way, Whirlpool, Galaxy, etc and it's awe inspiring and to know these things it gives you this sense of curiosity, wonder and awe at the same time you feel the insignificance like wow I'm a small speck in this giant vast cosmos and that's not an experience that is unfamiliar Uh, I think even Aristotle and Plato alluded to this a little bit and certainly Kant and Edmund Burke writing about the sublime the idea that we have this, you know, it's sort of like this uh, moment where our reason and our perceptions are in conflict. In other words, we, we're standing beneath the Milky Way in a very dark sky area, and the vast uh, tapestry of stars above us are they're just coming down and just the light is flooding upon us. And so our, our senses are overwhelmed our perceptual means are overwhelmed, yet our reason can still understand this in order it. wow, I'm looking at the Milky Way, so we have this tension between our perceptions and our reason. And for many people, that, gener- that might generate, you know, this, the simultaneous fear of awe tinged with terror. Like, oh my gosh, this is awe-inspiring, oh my gosh, I'm totally insignificant. And I think there's a way to reconcile that that doesn't have to give a sense of futility and it doesn't require uh, a turn toward deities or creators or anything like that. That And I think that that moment of transcendence that you're talking about is what uh, the astronaut Edgar Mitchell uh, called the explosion of awareness. He said, Mm. when you look down at Earth from the moon, you see it there. He said, you have an explosion of awareness. And that's the quote of his explosion of awareness that you are part of a much larger system of energy and matter and time and space. And once you get your reason around that, you can't look at Earth the same anymore. And I think, and I have, uh, I argue in my book, again, not trying to hide my book, but I have an analysis of this concept of the sublime and how that that moment of transcendence in the sublime, it's like the infinite and is united and connected up with the infinitesimal, me, or you, or whoever, we're small and infinitesimal, connected up to the infinite, and there's a moment that we can have that transcendent moment, and we think as a species, you don't think as an individual, you don't think, well, you don't think it's in a tribe. Once you're beneath the stars, you can't really think of America versus Russia, or all the tribalism on our planet, and I think what we need to do is develop that explosion of awareness into a worked-out philosophy that can then guide our species into a more enlightened, understanding of our place on the planet and give us a a way to behave based on that explosion of awareness, sort of a a new way to think about how to organize our societies and determine our values. And I actually have written about that in my book. And there's also, you know, if you don't want to buy the book, in Amazon or Kindle or iBook or whatever, there's an essay that explains this at medium and it's called explosion of awareness. Anyway, that's that so I'm totally down with uh, what you're saying Michael about this need to have a transcendent experience in the universe and I, I think we can do that in a non-mystical, non-religious way in doing it in a way that merges aesthetics and science and philosophy into one sort of transcendent experience. And when you get that, you naturally become more ecological, but you don't become anti-technology. You you can see them merging together in some way.
0: Yeah. And just so so people know, that's uh at Barry Vacker at Medium. So there's a lot of cool essays up there and Thank you. yeah, and uh, you know, you can clap 'cause it's a medium that <laughs> medium's implemented that function now. That's a Yeah, let them it's kinda nice. It's you can like something more than once, you know. It that's, it's it just yeah, t- talk true. about a poverty of imagination. Like it didn't even occur to me in my you know, my internet mind shackles that you could clap on something multiple times. Anyway, a, a good source. So, I guess in response to all you just said, <laughs> yeah. the, the issue we'll of I space I tourism comes up for me. because I'm not talking about a theme park. <laughs> well, because, you know, here's the thing. is like you can't really separate the management of an area from the boundary maintenance issue. And so it you know, it just gets into this thing of, you know, by rendering something, by calling something wilderness, we thereby create an opportunity. And also, if you're talking about, you know, this explosion of awareness that's precipitated for Edgar Mitchell by seeing the earth from space, then there, there seem to be very few opportunities for people to have that kind of visceral experience outside of, you know, virtual reality, which I would argue is an important an unprecedented and super cool way to get people into orbit, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah
1: the editor, e- ed- by the way, just so I'll add on to that. The editor for my uh, book, Her, uh, her and her boyfriend just got some new advanced virtual reality system and she just texted me tonight about having this incredible view of Earth from the International Space Station while she is sitting at home, and she said it was, it r- rendered uh, her just awe-inspired and spellbound, and she said it was just like what you said in, in your book. You know, it was the exact same feeling she had, even though she is sitting at home uh, north of Philadelphia and not you know, actually on the space station. So the, the virtual reality holds enormous promise to the extent that it gives us the sense of mapping a real external world that we may not have yet to experience, right? Mm.
0: Yeah, you know, in Arthur C. Clarke's last book that he co-wrote with Stephen Baxter, he he talks, uh, the book Light of Other Days, they write together a future in which we learn to peer through microscopic wormholes into vast distances in space and time, but never really develop a space program proper. And so the book starts with the decline of the rocket program, and then replaces that with instantaneous information transfer to a species that remains more or less trapped on earth but can sort of astral project technologically to anywhere and inhabit these spaces in virtual reality and i think that that was that's an interesting final statement from the author the, the same author that gave us the star child i thought yeah, well, it sounds
1: like he's talking about the Hubble Deep Fields, right, where you can peer through a tiny darkness in the sky and see thousands of galaxies billions of light years away.
0: Mm. The idea that, that we can sort of dream our way into space rather than travel there ourselves.
1: Yeah, you know, and the, right, the distances are so vast, they aren't inherently insurmountable. They're insurmountable with current technologies we have. That's why the Stargate is not really explained, and that's why... Uh, interstellar with the wormhole and then the, later the black hole so we have that idea that there could be some way to transport ourselves through the across these vast distances so yeah by the way I think that 2001 is the greatest space film and I would put interstellar as number two I would say those are the top really? two uh, space films of all time yes that would that would be my take but I know there's going to be people listening going oh no this guy's crazy so now they won't they discount the rest of what I'm going to say but I think that, that it just seems to me that if we're going to present ourselves as enlightened beings, which we always talk about, ha- and when we talk about space, everybody goes, they show the clip of Neil Armstrong, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, but later voyages, the later astronauts are up there hitting golf balls, whacking them around, driving dune buggies and and singing, uh, you know, dancing on the moon or whatever, and because we'd already run out of, we could think of anything uh, to do other than replicating what we already do in our boredom here on the planet. And so all I'm suggesting is, is that we don't really need to extend off this, the tribal narcissism that dominates the daily activities on this planet that's what i would be opposed to and then we should go out but we should do it intelligently as we do that and that probably makes it sound like an elitist or something like that i just think it it doesn't speak well of our species if we extend our pollution and ecological destruction off the planet we extend our warfare off the planet we extend our tribal narcissism off the planet there's a there's some kind of hipster Vatican astronomer who who thinks we should be thinking about baptizing extraterrestrials if we encounter them. I mean, it's literally ridiculous. <laughs> Check it out. He's got a book called Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial?
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm aware of that guy. Yeah, uh, brother Guy
1: Consolmagno Consol or something like that? I forgot exactly. But uh, he's mentioned in my book briefly. Well, the you passage. know, I
0: think, uh, for what it's worth, I think that that question bound as it is by the Rhetorical limitations and conceptual limitations of Catholicism is nonetheless doing an interesting kind of work in cultural space. Because by asking whether you should baptize an extraterrestrial, what he's asking is uh, almost like a Franciscan question about you know, the the in the inner divinity and their you know the intrinsic dignity as part of creation of all of these things that we're more or less guaranteed to fear. And so in that sense, yeah, you know but, I find oh, that I find that statement no, sort of like ahead of District Nine. All right, like,
1: hold on. There's nothing uh-huh. dignified in being baptized. Let's get real. There's nothing dignified in being baptized. Come on. That's absurd. Well I think Michael you said there was something intrinsically dignified about it. I don't see what that is.
0: Well, what I'm saying is that to a Catholic priest, the question of whether or not you can baptize an extraterrestrial is a question of whether or not that being has a soul, which is an interesting question for them to be asking, you know, hypothetically.
1: Go tell that to the Native Americans that were slaughtered and in genocide by the Catholic priest in California and all throughout the American Southwest. Give me a break.
0: Well, definitely. I mean, definitely it's not, you know, I guess they were considered unbaptizable and that's just the thing, right?
1: That's exactly what would happen if we go out there again. He even asked that question and he says that they think, you know, he he works out the implications. He poses the question, what would happen if they don't want to be baptized and would we have to force it on them? And so what you would be talking about is a space war and a religious war in space because we still have this narcissistic oh, yeah, belief in a universe of two trillion galaxies that there's some dude out there looking out for us and has dropped off a cosmic behavioral plan to a few agrarian farmers 2,000 years ago. It's absurd. Yeah, I'm sure some of your readers might think that. I'm not a cosmic narcissist who thinks there's a secret plan out there waiting for me. I'm more of the existentials without the angst, celebrating the fact that I happen to be fortunate enough to exist And this combination of chemicals to even think about this, and I'm grateful for all the knowledge that's been rendered by all the greatest artists and philosophers and scientists, but we have got at some point get out of this narcissistic delusion that we're central to any plan or any vision or anything. It's There's no evidence for any of that. And the idea that we should be t- contemplating who we're going to baptize in space is absurd. I would say all we have to do is look at what happened when we encountered species that needed to be baptized on this planet and it was a genocide and a bloodbath.
0: Well, certainly I mean, no, no South- non-consensual baptizing. That's a fine place to start. Ultimately, I'm a little more concerned with human beings not recognizing the like agency of the other in whatever way we meet the other than I am with like,
1: yeah, I agree with
0: the, you know, anything else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We should treat those beings with the respect that we would want to be treated ourselves. I, cause they're going to be made of the same stuff we are by and large. And based on what we know now, most of the stars are made of the same basic elements. I'm sure there's variation in some of them, but so far, they seem to be made of the same stuff so those whatever life forms intelligent or otherwise that we encounter they're going to kind of be made of the same stuff we're made of now they might look a little different and like we have a lot of different uh, ethnicities on this planet and there's a great glorious diversity on this planet and that's great no one would want to get rid of that but underneath there is a shared universality into the the, uh, actual chemical components of the atoms inside our DNA and I think even uh, James Cameron's avatar deals with this idea that I just mentioned that so we go out to that planet and we start basically to extrapolate the uh, obtaining from the planet when we start we wage war and start wiping out the indigenous peoples I think James Cameron's avatar is giving the exact warning that I was just stating that we need to be very careful as we go out and respectful of the life forms whatever they might be when we get out there and, and to treat the universe with respect and not something to trample us under.
0: Mm, yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting. T- I, f- I thought um, William Irwin Thompson critiqued Avatar specifically as a cowboy in Indian fantasy that sort of romanticizes a particular exploitative relationship that it's pretending to criticize, but is actually secretly reaffirming and reinforcing. And that it's critique, this ecological and primitivistic critique of Avatar, which was like a what, like a three hundred million dollar film in production and was, you know, the the source of a veritable mountain of toxic plastic merchandise, you know, <laughs> that it's like looking beyond the film too. It's it's just atrocious. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm not saying that uh, Avatar is a masterpiece. It's not in my top space films, but I just thought of it because it does have this message about. It, at least it seemed to me a fairly straightforward message. An imperfect plot because there's some kind of lame Pocahontas story going on there as well, and sort of seemingly patriarchal and some other. And there's other things you could get into colonialism, but it seemed they to be cut out saying, the
0: psychedelic scene. Don't- <laughs> There was no, they (laughs) cut out the initiation. He was initiated into manhood and they cut it out of the film because we're not really prepared to deal with the initiatic ordeal in our society. And that I think actually may get to the root of this issue of like, why is it that we only see adolescent fanboy versions of going to space and it's because we're not an initiated species.
1: And that gets us right back to the Blade Runner question at the beginning of the film. Blade Runner is a fanboy film. Ultimately, visual masterpiece, beautifully put together, stunning visuals, some interesting ideas, but it's ultimately a fanboy film and that, you know, we've got the holographic female uh, that's the, the avatar for the Ryan Gosling character. I, his name escapes yeah, me right Joy now. Joy
0: and Kay so and Joy, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then we've got, you know, this seeming uh, technologically advanced society. And I think I mentioned in my piece in Medium, but there was also a skyscraper standing pretty high in that city Was that was LAPD, right? Mm. And so you, we're not certain exactly what status civil liberties are in this uh, vision of Los Angeles 2049. We don't really know what that would be like, but we know it looks like it's an ecological disaster. And I think the the, the key philosophical moment is when – the Ryan Gosling character leaves LA and hes uh, I think he's out looking for Deckard and he's out in the desert and we see those fallen statues and they're kind of cracked and decaying and it looks like our fallen gods are just laying there in the desert just sort of decaying and in a state of entropy and I think that's kind of where we are uh, philosophically with that poverty of imagination. In fact, in the grand design in Stephen Hawking's book, Hawking and Leonard Mondeleau, uh their book from I think about four or five years ago, on the first page, they say philosophy is dead. It is not kept up with the current developments in cosmological science. And I think that's by and large true. And I think science fiction has filled the void of that, but it itself lacks the, the imagination you mentioned. And so now we have the superheroes coming in to try to sort of fill that void, and so the superheroes come out of the Overman, Uberman the then they also come from other mythological narratives and other narratives that we have, but we still, at least from what I've seen, and I may be totally wrong, I'm not familiar with every science fiction book that's ever been written, but I'm pretty familiar with most of the films, we don't have that vision of the enlightened human who's able to somehow transcend their individual condition to feel connected to the universe, and then also understand that we can act as individuals but think as universals, you know, I think in a universal mm. way. And we don't have that in the film. In fact, what's the, uh, there's that one scene where the woman who works for the evil industrialist guy, she's got her, uh, she's getting her nails done or something like that. And she's got mm. on, a, so, looks like something like Google Glass. And she's able to launch drone strikes with the Google Glass. Remember that scene? Yeah. Yeah, And, and so I'm just sitting there watching that and I, and people in the movie theater are going, oh wow, that's really cool. And I'm thinking, No, that's kind of, wow, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to use our glasses to launch drones. I don't that doesn't seem like a, a lot of intellectual progress. And I think that's what's missing in Blade Runner and all the other science fiction films is an intellectual progress demonstrated by the humans. Not demonstrated by how smart the AI is going to get or how smart the superheroes are, but when are we going to get the humans demonstrating that? And that's where we need the great artists and writers to come in and create this for us.
0: Yeah, you know, and for what it's (laughs) worth, I read Blade Runner 2049 as a critique of our lack of imagination. I read it as, you know, that, that... the scene where Neander Wallace accuses the barren uterus of his replicant creation as dead space between the stars. I think he's as much speaking critically of his own broken imagination, you know, and that there's this, relationship that John David Ebert, film critic, made about the replicant being born from a pouch in the ceiling as sort of like Athena being born from the forehead of Zeus, that it's this mechanized mm-hmm, exactly. ma- masculinization of the reproductive process, and that this film is actually like an adolescent male feminist film. You know, it's about the male relationship to the feminine mysteries of reproduction and, <laughs> you know, and our... Uh, I you know, people talk about it failing the Bechdel test, you know, it doesn't have the two female characters okay. having a conversation that's not about a male character, but at the same time, you know, it can arguably all of the most important characters of the film are female. Right. So there is this sense in which the female is, you know, exalted or deified in this film, even as it recedes into the horizon. It's, it's like uh, it escapes us. We don't get okay. it. We've ruined the biosphere <laughs> already. You know, so it's yeah, like, that's
1: a very good insight. That's a very good, that's a good take. Yeah, I can see that.
0: I don't know. I mean, I just, I just saw it as, you know, a, a cautionary tale about the logical conclusion of the patriarchy. Like this is where it gets to, you know, this is the absolute worst dystopia that we can possibly imagine, you know, is one, it's yeah, not it's- just 1984. It's also 1984 and everything else is a radioactive wasteland.
1: You're exactly right, and that's you know. Have you ever seen uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville? No. Oh, you've got to check that out because Blade Runner, the Ridley Scott version, borrows heavily from Alphaville, and I'm pretty sure that uh, 2049 does as well. But Alphaville is a very similar scenario. It's a. It's. I think it's one of the great sci-fi films of all time. And it's the, it's, I think it's the best one directed by Godard. I know he also did uh weekend, but uh, check out Alphaville. I mentioned it in the article in medium, thus spoke later. And I've got a poster of it and yeah. I discuss it, but it is this sort of deal where the main guy is wandering this sort of uh, vertiginous super modern city, which was filmed that part was filmed in this highly modernized part of ancient Paris. And they're building all these new sort of more sleek uh, modernist buildings in the 50s and 60s. So Godard took them in there. And they have uh, a guy there that is obviously a stand-in for Werner von Braun and this rocketry and stuff. And uh, they also mention, they allude to nuclear warfare. But it's a technological dystopia in this sort of regimented city. I saw it after I saw the original Blade Runner. I came across Alphaville in, in a school in Austin, and uh, but anyway, and I was like, "Wow, Blade Runner borrowed from this film. I can see the origins of it." So I would I invite readers to our listeners, I should say, to check out uh, Godard's Alphaville. It's a masterpiece that it points the way toward Blade Runner and Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and it's uh, but it, it kind of does it in a more humorous way. It's
0: got a lot of dry humor in it. It's pretty funny. Mm. Well, that sounds awesome. Hey, Barry, we're, yeah, we're coming it's, it's, up on an hour, and I, I want to, out of respect for your time, I want to uh, draw this. Well,
1: I make my living standing in front of uh, students of 250 in an auditorium for an hour and 20 minutes, so <laughs> so an hour is no big deal, especially when since I get to, got to share it with you, so that's a piece of cake.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, it, it has breezed past. But Before we wrap this up, part of the show that I love to do with people is to consider this a project that is a communication with posterity, you know, that we're actually, that it's maybe conceited to think so. Certainly the time capsule is a conceit, but you know, if we are to be sending a message into, you know, a hundred years from now or more then you know, what are the things that you would have to say or the questions that you would have to ask for our unborn future listeners of this? A
1: question for our unborn listeners. Uh, Let's see, that is a really, really good question. Well, I think one thing they should do is they should go to the Arizona desert and check out the saguaro cactus. That's probably the most noble looking, most dignified uh, life form on our planet, I think. It's very beautiful in its monolithic form. So maybe they could, we could sort of think about that as one way with, it's in its dignity and solemnity to uh, uh, contemplate the desert out there. Because I often think that a good way to go would be to just be buried under a cactus and become part of a giant cactus standing in the desert. So I don't know if that's a thought for them, but I think that that uh, there's something to be said for sort of uh, facing the universe as it is, as best we can, uh, acknowledging our limitations and our humility, but also acknowledging our aspirations to uh, uh, to be more enlightened and more uh I don't want to say in tune. I don't want to say connected to because those are almost cliche. But more aware of and sensitive to our origins and our destiny, whatever it might be. In fact, I think it's that that we have yet to discover this universal meaning for the human species. So we have all the tribal meanings and family meanings and consumer meanings, and we get meaning from our work and all that. But we've yet to find an objective, externally universal meaning for our species. So I think. In the quest for that meaning, we'll find our destiny. And I think that's where mm. we're at. In the quest for our meaning in the massive universe, we'll find our destiny.
0: Ha <laughs> ha. I like it. Wow. Awesome. Barry Vacker, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much, Michael.
0: And everybody, that's medium.com slash at Barry Vacker. Do you have anywhere else you want to send people?
1: Well, obviously, my books and uh, things are in Amazon and iBooks as well. I also I would have to I would be remiss if I didn't say one thing. I'm also an associate professor at Temple University in Philadelphia in the Department of Media Studies and Production, so they would <laughs> they would be upset if I didn't at least say that. So that's where I that's where I make my living, and I and I had the uh, chance to uh, engage in all this kind of writing and thinking and, and having these beautiful conversations. So I've kind of turned Medium into my long form blog, and it's been reasonably successful there so the medium or uh my stuff in amazon that would be about it and oh yeah i've got a really trippy film on youtube it's called space times square space times square filmed entirely inside uh, times square we won a couple of awards back in the day it's only 20 minutes Pop something understand. and turn it on and watch it. The room its really <laughs> trippy. Yeah, make sure the room is dark. You got a big screen TV. Go in there and turn that on. And uh, yeah, filmed entirely from the streets of Times Square. No, no talking heads. Nobody. It's all poetic, and I got an oh man, I got a, an incredible soundtrack from this electronic jazz composer in Brooklyn. Oh, that's great, Space Times Square. Check it out.
0: Awesome, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils, including philosopher Tim Freak, Cyborg musician Onyx Ashanti Science fiction journalist George Dvorsky Douglas Rushkoff Floral sculptor Anthony Ward And a bunch of other great ones So stick around And have a most excellent Eon